0: Yo, technology, what is it all about? Last year was the third worst year in history. So about 4% of the state burned last year. However, 11,466 structures burned out of 14 million structures in California. That's less than 0.1%. So while it feels like the whole state is burning, at the same time, the actual chances of a fire burning down your house are in the third worst year in history, you know, less than 0.1%.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson. Thank you for tuning in this week. Get ready, people. We're talking about insurance please i hope you didn't just pass out from boredom like i just did no 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 i joke i joke uh i assure you this is not your daddy's insurance we're talking about because what we'll actually really be talking about is climate change and what it is doing to the insurance industry so the number of mega disasters has tripled in the last 15 years just in the U.S. alone. And that has just completely upended one of the world's largest and oldest industries. Um, and not surprisingly, perhaps, there's a whole bunch of young Turks who have been watching for this play out and have decided to jump in to really try to shake things up. And among them is Nat Manning, who is this week's guest. Now, Manning is the co-founder of a company called Kettle. They're based out here. It's just over a year old. They've raised just short of $30 million. And what they're doing is basically turning machine learning algorithms loose, I'm looking particularly at wildfire risk and how to come up with a better way to assess it, to price it, and to offer it as reinsurance. And reinsurance, if you don't know, is quite crucial. It's basically the insurance companies for the insurance companies. They make sure when things go really wrong that you get paid. But why should we care about what is happening more broadly in the insurance industry? If you think about it, insurance is kind of like the lubricant of modern society. It's this backstop that kicks in when things go really wrong, help people get back up on their feet. When it stops working, it's a huge problem. And that's kind of what is unfolding as we speak in California due to these rampant wildfires, these once-in-a-generation catastrophes that now happen every year. So if you think about just your home, if you can't get insurance, you can't get a loan. No bank will give you uh, money, bank will give you a mortgage. If you can't get a loan, you can't buy a house. Or if you're in a house that is suddenly deemed uninsurable because it's in a high-fire zone, You're in no man's land. You have a house no one will buy, so you can't sell it, you can't move. You're just stuck there hoping it doesn't burn down, leaving you with nothing. But really the broader point here, again, is that climate change is really rendering a lot of the historical models that have underlying this industry um, for centuries, they don't work anymore in a world where you have floods and hurricanes and fires and hailstorms and all these kind of freak events that were once freak but are now much more common. Um, And so it's really forcing a reimagining of how this all works. And there's big, big money uh, at stake here. So that is what I wanted to talk to Nat about. Because he provides just a glimpse of how this machinery behind the scenes is kind of breaking down as the world warms up. And there's a lot of kind of fallout from that, as we see here in California, where... Uh, Insurance companies are trying to pull out. Regulators forcing them to stay. Premiums are shooting through the roof. People can't afford to live in their homes because they can't afford to pay their insurance. Um, So you have all of this kind of violent upheaval happening in the industry. And then you have a bunch of upstarts, kettle among them, who are kind of trying to jump in and turn machine learning algorithms kind of the the latest and greatest technology to try to come up with a better mousetrap so that is what we talk about so like i said insurance and just one thing before we get to nat just in terms of the timing we talked about 10 days ago so we're talking about some things like this big fire in California that were just unfolding that are now kind of subsided, a bit more under control. But just to give you a sense of the timing, it was about 10 days ago, so just bear that in mind as you hear some of the kind of references about the here and now. Enjoy. I wanted to have you on because the world is falling apart, and I figured you'd be a good person to talk to about this. And what I mean by that is, I think when we spoke not too long ago, I mentioned I, was just, I had just been in South Lake Tahoe and I was looking this Calder fire, which is now just raging toward the lake and has already destroyed 500 homes, burnt 200,000 acres. It started the day we were leaving, the 14th of August. And it's just this fire is really interesting and I think apropos of the what I want to talk to you about because they're like, you have these Sierra Nevada mountains, they're super high elevation, there's lots of granite. And the theory was a fire, a wildfire wasn't supposed to be able to get that high and then jump over granite mountains to burn stuff up. But that is happening. It's happening there as well as another fire in California right now. So it's kind of this once in a generation, theoretically catastrophe that is happening right now, which followed a once in generation catastrophe that happened last year during fire season and on it goes and on it goes. So I was wondering, so could you just describe what that does to the insurance industry or insurance companies who have, insu- you know, the kind of the, the cascade of effects? And I think that would be a good way to get into what it is that you guys are doing and why it's important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So also here in California, and it's been a scary few years. And what these new megafires are doing are causing these ripple effects. Through the whole insurance yeah. industry, because what is insurance? It's this system where we all pull our money together to essentially. It's I, I find this very beautiful, elegant system where we all pull our money together to essentially take care of those when a when a crisis happens, when a when a right. catastrophe happens, and and what's happening right with climate change, as uh, we're just seeing more and more of these. We've seen a three x increase in billion dollar catastrophes over the last fifteen years in the US
1: alone. So a tripling of billion dollar catastrophes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's hurricanes, wildfires, flooding, all Hail, the stuff, all the, yeah. all the biblical stuff, all the
0: biblical stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Not including COVID. <laughs> so just, uh, <laughs> right. just, just these climate related disasters. And what that means is that there's a lot more money that has to be paid out, right? Which in to insurance, right? Insurance is trying to make sure that it collects enough premiums and understands the risk across a wide swath of area to be able to uh, have enough money to be able to make people whole for those who get hurt, right? And it's called actuarial modeling. But what the historical models do is they look at the past 500 years and say, hey, if this spot in Tahoe has burned down Three times or two times, let's say, in the last 500 years, then there's a one in 250 chance it's going to burn down. Right. The problem with that is that you know the data from the last 500 years is no longer really predicting what's going to happen in the next 15 years. We have changed things so much that the models aren't aren't working in the same way. And and traditionally, what has been used is a stochastic modeling approach. So, looking at the data and then understanding what what's going to happen, like that one in 250 I mentioned, but this is a problem, right? Because what happens, right, when you don't have these, these safety nets to be able to make people whole, right? Is is what, what's the downstream effect of this? It, it can get quite nerve-wracking, right? If in California housing, if suddenly you don't have the reinsurance there to ensure the insurance companies and the insurance companies start dropping houses and saying this doesn't make financial sense for us anymore to insure. Well, if you can't get home insurance, you can't get a mortgage. Yeah. Now, if some of, tons of areas aren't able to get mortgages, you've got a housing crisis, right? The demand for homes could go, drops through and, and we all remember what a housing crisis feels like. So,
1: Or you just have a bunch of stranded assets, right? Exactly. Where people are like, okay, if I want to move out of this high fire zone, I simply can't because no one will buy my house, because no one will lend against it, because no one will insure it. Yep. Yeah.
0: That's that's the worst case scenario sort of, sort of right. structure. Yeah. So for sure, it is, you know, we have been here the last last 11 years and and things have changed a lot during that time, right? Like the last five years, we've been just dealing with smoke and particularly over the last three, it just feels like every year Mm -hmm. it gets a month longer, right? However, if you look at the actual structures burned, the actual fires, what damage that's causing, last year was the third worst year in history. And it was actually the worst year in history from total acres burned. So about 4% of the state burned last year. It was roughly 100 million acres, about 4 million acres burned last year. Uh, However, 11,466 structures burned out of 14 million million structures in California. That's less than 0.1%. So while it feels like the whole state is burning and Smoke damage is is bad. It's causing problems for agriculture. It's causing problems for working outdoors. This is all true. Yeah. At the same time, the actual chances of a fire burning down your house are in the third worst year in history, you know, less than 0.1%.
1: Right, right. And so what are you doing, right? Because you talk about, you know, the insurance industry. It's this kind of, you know, people's eyes glaze over at the very mention of the word insurance. Yeah. But it does, it is one of these kind of bits of quite important plumbing that kind of makes the world go round, at least in the West. What are you guys doing that is different, or how are you approaching this? Because surely these gigantic insurance companies and the reinsurance companies, which of course are the ones that then take on the risk from like a Geico or a State Farm or whomever, mm-hmm. their job is to assess risk. Surely they're like seeing the same things you are of just like, these old models seem less relevant. We've got to figure out a different way to go about this.
0: Yeah. So the the eyes glaze over when anyone mentions insurance or reinsurance, like <laughs> something very used to. And uh, and I gotta say, it feels like sort of our our superpower. The fact that honestly, I I don't know what's wrong with me. My parents are actually artists, and they uh, apparently when I was a kid, they they said, you know, he can he he can grow up to do whatever he wants as long as he doesn't become an insurance salesman um and uh <laughs> true story uh, and, and actually when they told me that it like you know it caused me to wait a few years to to kind of go start this company which in the classic sort of why now because they
1: had planted that seed planted and that, i like, felt I like i was that.
0: i was just i was like i can't do this to my mother um uh, so right. <laughs> what we do at kettle is use advanced AI machine learning to do a much better job of understanding risk. Yeah. Our first product is on wildfire in California. And what we actually do is we, we focus on the reinsurance part of insurance. And so I'll take a second to just explain what reinsurance is, yeah, yeah. because most people might, might not know. And so what's happening in the insurance chain, you might own a home here in California, let's say and you go get insurance from All Farm, we'll call them. Mm-hmm. And Uh, What all farms set up to do is take care of the many thousands of things that could go wrong with your home, say your your roof leaks or you get robbed, et cetera, et cetera, or you get burned down in a giant wildfire. Well, when that happens, they're actually not setting up their risk models and their balance sheet to be able to handle that in the same way that you, you know, you're like, I'll do as a homeowner, yeah, if if my cabinet breaks, I'm going to fix it if this little thing breaks, I'll get an electrician to come. If my sink gets clogged, I'll get a plumber. I'm not going to call my insurers. But when a big thing happens, I am going to file a claim, right? But actually the same exact thing happens for the insurers. They say, I'm going to cover all this kind of types of loss. But when a giant wildfire, you know, comes through and wipes out 500 of my homes at once, I'm going to file a claim, usually for anything over a hundred million dollars of loss. And I'll file a claim to my reinsurer and I'm gonna buy reinsurance for that. Right. And so reinsurers insure insurance companies, and what they're really insuring are these giant catastrophes, these these large crises that are being exacerbated by climate change.
1: Sorry, and the reinsurers are broadly based in Bermuda or London. And yeah, and You're... Switzerland.
0: Exactly. It's the safety net below the safety net. You got to be yeah. real sure it's still there. Um, it's the the second parachute. Uh, you got to make sure it works. Right, 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 right. So that's the background. Uh, and that, that is where it's based. And what we're doing, though, is we come along and we have said, as we talked a little earlier, it's like, hey, the, the models here, they're no longer working. There's been a 3x increase in billion dollar catastrophes. That's resulted in an over 60% loss in return on equity for this industry. Over the last 10 years, 60% loss. Yeah. Uh, in, in re- Reduction
1: rather. Sorry.
0: Right. Right. Apologies, yeah, yeah. not yeah. loss. It's been yeah. a 60% yeah, yeah. reduction from uh, where it was right. a decade ago.
1: Business is not nearly as good as it
0: used to exactly. be. Exactly. And you just have to, yeah. as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, you just kind of have to look outside to to realize that. Right. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about insurance is like, it is the OG data scientist. In fact, Uh, The insurance Mm. industry invented data science back in the day. I believe if I remember right, it was doing actuarial tables in Scotland as a life insurance policy for the wives of preachers. And so they built data science, trying to understand life expectancy of the clergy. And then they would pull money together to take care of their widows if they died. And that was the beginning of data science. Scottish widows. Exactly. Scottish widows. It was the beginning of data science. And yet we now can, Drive cars with data science and and AI. We can re-land spaceships, right? Like, and yet yeah, we yeah, yeah. we haven't really done a an update in this original, mm-hmm. you know, insurance industry of the actual understanding of risk of these actual models.
1: So why is that? Right? Because if it feels like reinsurance, which is the parachute, you know, the second parachute that underlies this whole gigantic industry. Mm-hmm. Their whole business is risk and being smarter than anybody else in the world at assessing risk. How is it that they're like kind of not keeping up with the times when this is the absolute core of their business?
0: I give a few reasons. One is the classic innovators dilemma. The industry was making great returns for decades, right? Mm. And then climate change happened. Uh, And when you're making great returns you kind of have a hard time steering the boat, right? You get complacent. You get complacent. Yes. Uh, and these are huge ships, huge businesses that have been operating certain ways. It's hard to move them to change the direction, right? Like to change a big tanker. Right. You have to plan that out many years in advance. So that's one. Two is what also happens in, in big industries is this, in our opinion, this horizontalization of incentives. So often this is talked about in the auto industry, you know, everything got outsourced and horizontal and that didn't serve the industry well. Same in space. And that's kind of the verticalization of those two industries, which you know, Tesla is the the example of has allowed it to, mm. you know, and SpaceX has allowed it to be much more efficient with cost and, and align incentives. And that similar sort of thing happened in our opinion in reinsurance, where 15, 20 years ago the the numbers were like, hey, we need to increase margins. We want to, you know, improve Well, what's one of our most costly things? Oh, all the all the actuarial departments are really costly. Yeah. Hey, look, there's this new industry of of SaaS providers, of technology providers doing modeling that we can hire and and spend less. So let's do that. And so what's happened is the reinsurers have kind of outsourced a lot of this. And the problem though is it's a it's a technology provider and their incentive isn't aligned, right? If they provide a model and the reinsurer loses a bunch of money, they still gotta pay their their SaaS bill. And they still gotta go back the next year, right? And so our model, we don't sell software, we sell reinsurance and we put some of our skin in the game along with the bigger pots of money out there because we believe that's a better system for the whole ecosystem because we're actually aligned with the risk, right? We're saying- So
1: you're actually a, a reinsurance company. Exactly. It's
0: easier in many ways to just sell software, to actually set up the infrastructure and manage all the regulatory component to being a, um, to reinsure. Uh, You have to, it it takes more work, but we think it's a better business model uh, and also just aligns these incentives, right? As we go to the big pots of money out there who are putting their money on the line for risk, we say, Hey, look, you know, we're putting some of our uh, money on, uh, and, and it's actually a huge percentage of the total balance sheet we have, although very small compared to what they're putting to work.
1: We're putting some of our skin in the game too. So how much money have you guys raised? We have raised just shy of 30 million so far. 30 million in the insurance reinsurance world sounds really small, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it is, so it's like great, we can insure two homes in Palo Alto, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> uh, we're making a difference. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, so we'll get a little into the weeds here and, and tell me if this gets too much, but yeah, the way we first set up, so there's sort of what we're doing right now, and then there's what's in the works, what we first have set up as as a what's called a managing general agent an MGA and we are a reinsurance MGA and what that essentially means is that we are a glorified broker who who has the pen and i i actually find one of the best analogies of this and and maybe some of um you listening will understand how this works too is the is the venture capital world mm-hmm. right if i go raise money from vc I think I'm raising uh, money from, and I, and I am, like from, I mean, name some of our leads. Like for us, as a true or a crew capital, right? True Ventures or a crew capital. Yeah. Those are the people I have a relationship with. That's who I say I raise money from, et cetera. But in fact, they have the large percentage of their funds, right? Is from LPs. Is their LPs. Exactly. Right. We work in the same way, right? When I we're see. selling reinsurance, people are like, oh, you're, you're getting it from Kettle. But the vast majority are from LPs, which we call risk capital providers or capacity providers. Uh, okay. And the interesting part is they're actually a lot of the same uh, pots of money that are LPs and venture funds as well. They're big pension funds, they're hedge funds. And then the last bucket is, is traditional reinsurers. And they put money to work with us saying, okay, we'll... You know you guys take your fees you put the deal together but we believe that your models you're going to make a return here we believe in your models we believe in the work that you're doing and that you're going to find good investments or good risks to support
1: got you and so what does your model do like how does it work like what is it doing that these kind of outsourced kind of actuarial models that you talk about what is the mouse trap that you've built that's different
0: yeah first i'll start from a data flow perspective so we gather data from all this geospatial data, all this weather data, all these different sources. We, we're constantly out evaluating new private sources of data, mm-hmm. and we bring all that in and we translate it all into a format and structure that works really well for reinsurance and insurance. The nice part is that a lot of this data, I will say, is it's open data. In my a previous role, I used to work in, uh, uh, in the White House in the Office of Science Technology Policy, and I focused on opening up data specifically actually for humanitarian use. I was working with USAID and, and FEMA. It's actually part of how I got obsessed with, with insurance. And I have great thanks for everyone who did that, because what we're doing is we are gathering a ton of the data that has been made public by NOAA and by NASA for the last 30 years. And we, we bring all of that in, we translate it, put in some other data of our own, so we, we get some other real estate data, et cetera. And then we create two models. Uh, and they're both machine learning models ai models the first one is focused on the chance of a fire starting it's called our ignition model and the second one is how Mm -hmm. a fire spreads it's called our spread model and essentially what they're trying to do is figure out what's the chance that this lat long this exact spot on the map what's the percent chance we think it's going to burn down in the next 12 months and between those two models we can put a probability on that now we use a specific form of machine learning called swarm neural networks or it comes from particle swarm optimization. And it's often been used in robotics or uh, genetics. And what's cool about this is we're actually running many side-by-side neural networks. And they're each being trained mm. on a specific variable. And the reason why this works really well is if you think about fires or mega fires, some of the key things to know is that there are over 10,000 wildfires a year in California. Last year, 14 of them caused 99% of the damage, and that's almost always the case. There are a few of them that get out of hand and cause a huge amount of damage. Yeah. We're actually very good at putting out fires. We put out the vast majority of them. The question is, you know, which are gonna be the 14, and what were the things that caused them to happen? And so what the AI is looking for are all of the factors that align to cause this sort of
1: terrible outcome. Right. The factors are like what? Wind. A lot of fires start along
0: a road, right? Whether that's because of Mm -hmm. the electricity wires or trash or things that get thrown out of the the road, et cetera. Like the, so let's say the eyes looking at a situation like, okay, there's this thing that looks like a road. It's this gray set of pixels that are driving along. And to the right of it, is miles of green, right, of trees, are brown, unfortunately, right now in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it hasn't rained for six months. And it's that time of the year where the winds are blowing really hard off the ocean, and they're blowing to the east. So to the east of this road are is this unstopped area of trees. The winds are blowing really hard, and it's uphill. So a couple of key things are so fires burn faster uphill. There's no natural fire breaks in the way. The other thing is there's no other roads that come anywhere into this giant forest. So there's no access to get fire trucks there. We know that everything is really dry because of the weather and and the vegetation index is low, et cetera, or the moisture vegetation index is low. And and so these different factors have all come together and the winds, the winds are a major factor come in. And we know the chance of ignition's high because it's right next to this road. And right. now suddenly you've got a whole bunch of, variables all aligned in the wrong direction and you say this is a pretty high chance that this is gonna gonna go right now you could have the same situation but there's a a big old walmart right there right with a huge parking lot and suddenly you're like well there's a good chance a fire could start here because you're still next to the road and you still have this set of trees but then it's going to blow right into this parking lot and then someone's going to put it out right away right the asphalt fire exactly so that's a little bit of a zoom in, but that's what it's doing now compared to the normal, most best in class kind of modeling in the past has been to run a hundred thousand simulations roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and usually it's kind of done you know, stochastically, as I mentioned earlier.
1: And those hundred thousand simulations, just bring it back down to the level of like, you know, on the individual level that will spit out at the end of it. A Premium, right? Exactly, to ensure this building, it will cost you whatever 50% more than maybe something a mile from here because these are all our risk factors and this is what we think it costs to for us to like uh, you know kind of take on the risk, exactly.
0: And it's m- predominantly looking at the historical data being like right. this area has burned X amount of times in the last 500 years, it's a one in 250. We're going to run a bunch of different simulations and in across right. those hundred thousand simulations, this area burns down twice. In every five hundred years or something, et cetera, and then the outcome is exactly at a premium, and I'll get more into how premiums are done at the reinsurance level. But essentially, yeah, what is the risk of this, and what do we need to charge for it for a wildfire cover? Right. In our models, we're running forty two billion simulations for every turn of our model, which we run you know every two weeks. So right, it's just a a total brute force order of magnitude different level. Uh, and that's the power of machine learning, right? That's that's the technology we now have in our hands.
1: And that brute force difference yields presumably something that's more accurate or more complete. I mean, I'm just trying to understand, you know, so if, if the old way of doing it is like, here's our 500 years of data, we're going to do a bunch of different simulations, and this is the number it spits out. You're doing 42 billion. The theory is that your accuracy can be a bit more pinpoint and a bit more fine-tuned Than these old models. Correct.
0: Yeah. So you know that, okay, only maybe 0.1% of the homes are going to burn down this year, but we have a better idea of where that's going to happen. Right. And if you know that, then you can charge the appropriate premium for those areas, which is high, which also to get back to climate should incentivize people to not live and build homes in places that have a really high chance of burning down. Yeah. And yet, you know, the people who are in not highest areas don't see their rates go through the roof or have them start having policies drop in areas where it's really not as high as we think. And what's happened, right, is there's this feeling of the whole state's going to burn down and we don't know exactly where it is. We know some, you know, the rough ideas we don't really know. And so we're just going to raise the rates on this entire zip code right, or really on everywhere. And then, yeah, and then specifically like on this on this area or this zip code. And, and for us, we're like, well, actually this part over here is pretty safe. And, and this part just over here, you're right. It's, it should be, right. it is 50% more dangerous and it should be charged accordingly.
1: Got you. Got you. Where are you from?
0: Uh, I grew up outside
1: Philadelphia. Outside Philly. So yeah. you grew up the son of artists. That's right. <laughs> who said, whatever you do, don't to get into insurance. Oh, sorry, mom. so what was the circuitous path uh presumably to getting to to actually going against your parents wishes and getting into insurance
0: uh so yeah so to get real here actually i was in college doing that thing where you just study everything that looks interesting to you Mm -hmm. in the course book i ended up studying philosophy and eastern philosophy and i ended up studying Bob by by living in a uh in a monastery for three months in japan I spent a lot of time meditating. So
1: you studied Eastern philosophy, and you went and did a study abroad. And I went to st- I studied abroad in Costa Rica, San Jose, Costa Rica. Cool. And spent every weekend drinking cheap beer and <laughs> and running around and just being generally an idiot. You went and spent three months in a monastery.
0: I did, yeah, I did. Um, and it was it was enlightening. I did go to some fun. <laughs> Noise rock concerts in Osaka. You know, I had to have a few moments to break out. Um, that was a good time, but I did spend most of that three months on a cushion. And I also happened, you know, this might be, I don't know, trite, but like it's true. I had watched Inconvenient Truth kind of right before going. Um, mm. And I think I'd taken a class that was, again, I was in philosophy. It's called Religion Gone Wild, you know, philosophy, humans, and, and natural environment. And those two things happened. And what happened was I came out of that being like, climate change is a problem and it's a big problem. And I, this is something that I want to really dedicate my life to.
1: So you saw inconvenient truth. Then you went and meditated for three months and then you're yep. like, this is it. I've got it. Clarity. <laughs> right. It's important to have some purpose, right? You
0: know, absolutely. Frankel, um, and uh, came out of it feeling some purpose and, Went back to school, ended up doing a master's in environmental science, focusing on the clean development mechanism on, on what was the Kyoto Protocol and, and essentially carbon finance. Yeah. For folks who don't know, we had a global carbon finance system to put a price on carbon and the US wouldn't sign the treaty and therefore China wouldn't sign the treaty and therefore it never really took off. So it could have been a very different world. Frankly, if uh, if Florida went differently in 2000, but not have to go too far down that line, uh, that path, <laughs> um, that tech counterfactual, uh, it's those, a hard those, one yeah. to feel. Um, that's why I studied, came out. I ended up working in clean tech. You know, I had definitely had the belief, and, and still do, of hey, if we could just make clean technology cheaper and more profitable than dirty technology, we can solve this a lot of this problem. I do think that having policies and carbon finance and things like that in place to do that is a, is a good move, but we didn't. So, but I, I focused on, on a whole bunch of different mitigation technologies. I was working kind of consulting, doing this uh, throughout South Asia and Southeast Asia for a number of years. But I always had this kind of entrepreneurial desire, this pull to, to good old Bay Area. Uh, and so I moved here, went to one of these programs about how technology is going to solve all the big problems in the world and ended up meeting this organization called Ushahidi, which means witness or testimony, and at the time built the, the largest open source software platform for crisis response mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, and I was just really taken with the organization. I was empowered by open source software. I thought this is really cool. And it I also had been working globally. Um, is, it means witness or testimony in Swahili, by the way, and the organization was, was founded out of Kenya. So I was doing that. And I also, at that point, too, I had this kind of sad feeling of like, man, we kind of failed on the mitigation part. Like, I started seeing the writing on the walls and was like, we're going to need to help help people. So I was doing that. I ended up, as I mentioned earlier, going to, uh, from there, working in the White House as part of the first class of Presidential Innovation Fellows, which is now, you know, there's some amazing programs and any technologist should, should go check these out around bringing your technology skills into the, into the U S gov. And this is back in 2012, mm. 2013, got to be kind of on the front line of that. And I was there when Sandy hit the East coast. And so I like slept right. on the floor of FEMA for three or four nights, uh, working on it. I was working on opening up data for humanitarian mm. use. And between that and working at Ushahidi, which I went back to after uh, a year uh, and a half in DC and up running that organization, Ushahidi, what I just saw was, two things. One, these crises increasing, right? And I was watching it firsthand. Yeah. Two, that insurance companies and were the ones who were fascinated with this data, which makes sense, right? Yeah. And that's what got me into insurance. I was like, this is kind of cool. And then I had this realization that if you think about it like a graph where you graph sort of these big catastrophes and you think suffering on the y-axis and, and sort of and time over the x-axis, you see this big spike in suffering at the beginning, right? you have yeah. sort of two weeks of, of really triaging hospitals. The news is there.
1: Like what's happening right now in, um, in like Louisiana with Hurricane Ida. Exactly. Exactly. Right.
0: right? Or in Caldor, like the front page of the New York Times today, it's Ida, it's, it's Tahoe. But in two weeks, it, it won't be as much, right? right. Um, or at least not in Ida's case. And donations will slow down, yeah. um, and you will have solved the kind of a lot of the life saving moments, right? And everyone kind of moves on. But what then? You have this long tail of rebuilding everything, mm-hmm. and really, that is just like their communities. It's just communities, FEMA, and their insurance companies, and it's really communities and their insurance companies for yeah. this long tail. And I had this feeling that like, if you graft this, the area under the long tail might be just as big, if not bigger than the area under the kind of spike at the beginning. And so the total suffering yeah. uh, from crises. disease, like if you could improve the insurance industry, you could really reduce suffering. And I still believe that very much.
1: Well, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that. I think I mentioned when we spoke before, I did a piece on the wildfires last year and went up and spoke to a bunch of people and was at one of these kind of I can't remember what they call them. They're like reaction centers or kind of Mm -hmm. help centers. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked to a guy and he had lost his trailer in the paradise fire. Mm -hmm. And he, since then, which had been two years prior, he'd been like being bounced around to different FEMA funded kind of refugee camps, basically Mm -hmm. in California Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about that long tail of suffering, there's a whole swathe of people like him who had their homes burned down to the ground. Some of them had insurance, some of them did not. But a lot of them who did, they're still fighting with their insurance companies or there's some issue and they're just living this kind of horrendous existence where they don't have a home and they have no certainty and there's nowhere they can kind of go when they're just like, you know as you say you have that quick spike where everything burns to the ground and then it's 2 years later still trying to figure out what you're doing with your life basically
0: no it's it's completely traumatic and um yeah it's awful
1: and so what you're doing now how does that long tail of suffering how does that help cuz it really feels like what this is about is having people who are insured like get the money And get them to start rebuilding their life or whatever it may be. Kind of like expedite that process. Exactly. Yeah. I mean,
0: so what we're doing now is trying to build. I mean, ultimately, the job of reinsurance, in this case, is to be the ones writing the checks to that person to rebuild their life. So what we're trying to do is put, one, more money into these safety nets than there was before because the risk has increased. And to say, hey, we need to be able to make these people whole. Two is the system isn't very efficient at the moment to kind of what we talked about earlier if you can improve the efficiency of the whole thing you can improve the outcome for that person at the end which is what's really important both from a speed perspective also just from like a i don't have the exact numbers but like the amount of each dollar that ends up in that person's hand at the end of the day is not as high a percentage as it should be and we could make it much better yeah and, and part of that is like if you have better modeling and if you use technology to like to do a lot of these systems a lot better there's a lot we're working on parametric structures things like this aligning the incentives is a major part i mean what you're doing with insurance i talked about earlier that is quite beautiful is when you're paying your premiums you are essentially saying hey i'll put a little money in to help that guy who had his trailer burned down get his life whole, right right but what i'm going to do is give it to you this intermediary." to manage and most efficiently distribute it and understand the best way to do it, right? And what needs to happen is those intermediaries need to, if, if they can use technology to be more effective at understanding the risk and more just effective at like the transfer and movement of money and risk and overhead and all this stuff, then you can make sure that more the higher percentage of that dollar that you're paying on your premium is ending up in that person who needs it hand.
1: So, you're seeing all this in your previous life running Ushahidi, and then at a certain point, you take the plunge?
0: Like any hard thing. Um, I I was actually working on it for years, trying to figure out the right way to, like any early startup, right? Testing a bunch of products. Oh, man, some of them were so wrong. Um, So, you know, and just talking to as many people as I could, many false starts. But eventually, and I think in many cases, this might be the true story for many people, you know, it was my partner, it was my wife. who was like, Matt, you got to just do this. Like, come on, yeah, yeah. stop talking. It yeah, yeah. uh, gave me the courage. I put in my, my notice uh, with a good six months to sort of help train the next leadership of Ushahidi and Angela, by the way, who's doing a to her. is doing an incredible job. And so we, we worked on that. We worked on that transition. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to just go, go make this happen. And in that process, actually, I, I had a friend who's a, a designer. He runs an incredible design firm called Occupop, uh, and he's got blonde hair down to here, and he lives in Hawaii, and he looks like kind of like the coolest guy you've ever met. And I was talking his ear off about insurance, very much like this mm-hmm. conversation here. And yeah. he laughs, and at the end of it, is like, nah, man, do I look like someone that wants to spend an hour talking about insurance? But I'll tell you what, that was fascinating. And the only other person I've ever met who's made insurance sound half as interesting as you, is uh, this guy, Andrew, you guys should meet. And so he introduced me to Andrew, and Andrew was really, you know, this the missing puzzle piece for me at that mm-hmm. moment, you know, and I had not come from insurance. I was trying to start something in this space, but Andrew had spent his whole life in insurance. He At the time, he was the VP of machine learning and, and digital at uh, Argo Group, which is a public specialty and uh, insurer and reinsurer, and we just hit it off. Uh, we had so much fun as uh, Michael knew we would. And uh, we kept talking. And then uh, there was a point where it was like, you know, Hey Andrew, you want to uh, quit your, your fancy job, having a great time and get on the beach in Bermuda and try to do a startup instead. And, you know, good on him. He, uh, he agreed. So we kicked it off and this was kind of summer of 2019. Uh, and like anything, you know, got to work, had a bunch of bad ideas, recruited some people, still tried to kind of like he also had to put in his notice and, and, and do all of that, but we got the the wheels turning, tested out a bunch of different ideas. You know, even was kind of we the classic kind of walked around a Target asking people if they wanted to buy evacuation insurance, like any good user research should be done. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, that, there's a, there's a lot of stories there
1: I could get. Into I can some, imagine. Some hilarious I can ones, imagine. But that's that's how we kicked it off. And you tried to get into YC. Y, y Combinator. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I ask because this week I was just watching Demo Day. 370 companies from 50 wow. countries get, doing their one-minute pitches back to back to back to back to, wow. back to back to back to back. It's quite a machine.
0: Yeah, totally. It is a machine. And so, yeah, this one goes out both of the thanks to, to YFC and for everyone that didn't get in. So what what happened is, yeah, Andrew and I had met. We've been talking. He was really acting as kind of an advisor at the beginning. We actually—they get really fun. We had two ideas that we were testing. One, we'd gone out and, and I'd done a, a survey of everyone. It's like, hey, what's a big thing you had to spend money on that you weren't expecting to? And one of them, actually, the number one answer to that survey I did was—I'm uh, curious. Can you guess? No idea. It's no, totally no. left field from no what we've been idea. talking about. Uh, it was fertility. It was IVF. Whoa. And but that's also like I was interviewing mostly, you know people in the bay area in new york or yeah, yeah, you know yeah. in their yeah. 30s and you know exactly so it's it's a specific group but they're also yeah. people who have the money to spend on a, a kind of insurance, sure. a new a new insurance product and then the second one we had developed was around evacuations so we were testing both but we definitely had that moment where we looked back and we we're like uh we're two dads this is not the right product you know founder fit. yeah. It is something that should exist. Some people do have it, and I'll just leave it there. And I hope someone does build a direct-to-consumer version of that product at one day. But we were like, this is not the right thing for us, even if, the, if that's what the user group said. Yeah. So we then were working more on evacuation insurance, uh, which, again, aligned actually to the kind of climate change background and the work there and, and what we were, you know, I was really still felt that purpose and passion about. And the idea there was like, hey, when this is what we pitch YC you know, we'll put $3,000 in your pocket in less than an hour if you're in a mandatory evacuation zone. So as a parametric product, you paid like 10 to 30 bucks a month, depending on where you lived, if you're in Mm -hmm. risky or high risk. And if you were in a mandatory evacuation, that triggered the system and it just put that money in your bank account right away. Cool stuff. Uh, The problem that, you know, we pitched it, we got, we got an interview in YC, which allowed us to really start working. We brought in Son, our third co-founder, who was the he was one of the head quants, he'd worked with Andrew for years, uh, and, mm-hmm. and head engineer at uh, at Argo. And we started uh, working on this. We built the whole prototype, it was really cool, went into YC, pitched it, and they did narrow down very quickly to their credit on the one problem, which is like, well, if you sell this direct-to-consumer, the only people who will buy it are the ones who are in the highest risk of evacuation, it's called, yeah. um, and, which is a classic insurance problem. and Uh, There are ways to get around that, which is like if you were selling it through employers and it was, you know, just went to everyone who had a Gusto account or something or trying, you know, et cetera, like that could work. Right. But if you are just selling direct to consumer, even though there was interest, you're really just going to get a bunch of people in Napa, Sonoma and Miami and Louisiana, and that's not going to balance out enough. And so, you know, we didn't get in felt we're like a oh, bummer we kind of sat back like we still want to do this and we took the part that was focused on fire i was like well could we build this out and essentially build out what we have today which is right can we change this and focus on the actual understanding of the risk and leverage our understanding of reinsurance which is you know if insurance has started getting insure tech upgrades over the last five to ten years you know our opinion was like well reinsurance will be next you know yeah, pe- yeah. most people don't yeah. know what this is and it'll will move down the chain. So that was our thesis and we moved into that and we said okay, we're going to look our wounds. We didn't get into YC but that's okay and we'll just keep working on it so we spent the next 6 months, you know, just working on the prototypes and getting everything set up and and building out the team a bit more and yeah, and then went to market and raised that first round and and it's been a it's been a roller coaster of
1: excitement ever since. How was actually raising money? Was it because again, you know, in sure tech it's 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 not the sexiest. It's a big market, but you know, I'm just wondering how like what the reception was amongst, you know, Silicon Valley types and Sand Hill Road and all those type of, you know, folks when you're going around trying to get get meetings. Were you able to even get meetings?
0: Uh look, we were very blessed. Um, is the best way to put it. We were able to one, I think I've been lucky enough to just to know some great people, a couple so actually to to those startup folks out here is what I would say is I know some amazing other entrepreneurs and they're your best resource. So some, some incredible other, you know, entrepreneurs who have been mentors to me and friends who spent years just like grabbing coffee, listening to every bad version of my pitches for years, as I tried to make something happen in in insurance or, or that area, thanks to you guys. And they, they made a bunch of interest for me and that caused a snowball to happen and honestly, we had incredible reception, and we ended up having uh, actually 14 written term sheets, which was insane. So, wow. And and you know, it's also so important the why now that everyone talks about. Like, yeah, you know, we incorporated the company officially in February 2020. Like, right. does anyone remember what was happening right around February 2020? You know, and then I'd quit my job six months before Andrew now and, and everyone quit, and then like, boom, COVID. And I'm yep. panicked. Oh my god, we're never gonna have it. We're never gonna be able to raise. Did you see the Sequoia letter that went out? Like this is this is black swan. And Andrew goes to his credit because he's been in you know insurance for reinsurance for fifteen yeah. years or more. Goes now nah, this is this is the best thing that could happen because what's going to happen is everyone's going to freeze. They're going to mm. freeze all their funds. They're going to pull their money out, and rates are going to spike. And we can come in and bring stability back to the market after this price dislocation and that's exactly what we've been trying to do. So right. Took a deep breath, weighed out that summer, uh went to go raise that first round and feel very blessed for how that all went. Love love our investors. They're they're incredible and honestly they they came around, you know, 6 months later and we're like guys we're just on a tear. We're going to we're going to double down. Let's preempt your your A round and so it was, it was actually our existing investors that just then led uh, the next round. So big, big shout out, Loved to all of them.
1: Homebrew, a crew, Anthemus, uh, and True. Right. And the the kind of the upshot of what you guys are doing is that say, you know, going back to explaining how the kind of the models work is that, you know, if you're in a high fire zone, I know here and in places in like, you know, Florida that are, you know, in flood or hurricane zones, insurance companies have been trying to pull out altogether and then you have regulators trying to force them to stay and also saying and by the way you can only raise premiums by X amount because of what otherwise it's unaffordable so there's a real tension point there so is, is the breach then for you to step in and be like all right we can reinsure this risk that is still quite expensive but not nearly as expensive as this kind of like blanket, jacking up of prices that others are trying to force upon you.
0: That's right. And so I I, I know for most people it's hard to have empathy for, for the big old <laughs> insurance companies out there, but uh, they are and I'll just speak to kind of the to California and wildfire at the moment. They are getting uh really squeezed because what's happened is they're regulated, so they're only allowed to increase their rates, you know, a certain amount per year for admitted policies, which the vast majority of home ownership is. And then what addition happened uh, the last two years, the Sacramento government has, has put a moratorium on, on being able to drop policies in certain areas. I think this year it was 800,000 homes out of 14 right. million, or it's actually, a, it's about 12.5 million homes. I think 14 million structures uh, were in areas that couldn't be dropped. So insurers couldn't drop them. And you got to imagine they're also Those are pretty high risk areas to be put under that. So now insurers, they, they can't drop homes. They can't really raise rates, but, the risks have increased. And then what happened in the reinsurance world is, which isn't regulated by the state in the same way they have, as I mentioned at the beginning, because of COVID, because of the fact that the models aren't working anymore, like, you know, reinsurers lost 20 billion, I think. And I think it's 20, oh, is it it's 2016 or 2017, the first big year. And then mm. apologies. And then, and then they lost in almost the same amount again in the next year. And that was the last, like, 25 years of premiums all together, like wiped out, and then again. And so what happened was when all this is is everyone said, Oh man, the models aren't working anymore. I'm out. And so the supply dries up. But that demand is still there. You know, the reinsurance supply dries up. The reinsurance supply dries up for wildfire specifically. Yeah, yeah. But the demand, primary insurers are regularly, they're required to buy a certain amount of reinsurance and they can't drop. So now the price of reinsurance goes like 15 to 30x um compared to wow. what it was pre-2016. And the insurers in the middle just have to do it because they, they're, they're not even allowed to drop certain areas or yeah. you know and also they, they don't want to drop their customers. Like what company in the world, particularly public companies that are required to grow, want to go around like cutting their customers out, right? That's their like that, that is their revenue. So now they're they're essentially just stuck. And what we can do is come along and say, hey, we have a better understanding of this risk. It is riskier than it used to be. It's riskier than it was pre-2016. Yeah. We were undercharging you know, at that point, but it's not 30X riskier, right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. We're talking it's three, it's four X riskier from a, right. a loss perspective. And so let's bring some balance back to that. But because the supply's gone and the demand's there, the existing you know markets basically like, and folks don't really understand the risk. They're just like, you know what? I'm just the model says this, I'm just going to double it because maybe, maybe it's wrong. And maybe I'll just even triple it because right, right. I'll pay it and I don't want to get caught. And and so I'm just going to charge as much as I can. So this is how it works. If you remember kind of like post 2008, like a lot of the banks stopped loaning yeah. rates go up, people can't get mortgages, people can't get loans. Uh, and then a newer, a newer folks came in and said, you know what, like giving student loans to People that went to MIT is, is pretty safe. I, I think we should keep doing this, um, et cetera. Right.
1: Um, and then so just lastly, just stepping back, I mean, you guys are starting with wildfire. But, I mean, we talked earlier about Hurricane Ida. There yeah. was like, you know, massive flooding in Germany this summer. There are wildfires in Athens. I mean, all of this is the idea that you're starting here and then you will broaden out and start to kind of build models for hurricanes, for flooding, for freezes like happened in Texas, things yeah. like that to build kind of like a whole suite of, you know, insurance for all the calamities that await us.
0: The way we think about that, I think might be helpful for folks. I understand as you think about it in a kind of classic two by two, again, you know, in a, in a graph and on one axis, essentially is... Will machine learning give you a, a, a real competitive advantage, right? How stochastic yeah. is this risk? So in an earthquake example, earthquakes are, are actually pretty stochastic. Like there are some cool companies doing some stuff around machine learning to understand the risks of the damage that earthquakes will cause, but actually predicting an earthquake is hard. It's and it's not like yeah. machine learning models yeah. necessarily going to make that much bigger of a difference.
1: Hold on one sec. Can you define stochastic?
0: Yeah, random
1: random, random. Okay.
0: um it, yeah and gotcha. and sort of it's a it's a statistical term for like trying to do predict randomness
1: random events right got gotcha. you yeah
0: and um the, on the other end you have wildfires right which i mentioned earlier you have 10,000 of them a year and 14 of them cause really big events right. and there are certain factors that you can turn and so you can run machine learning models on all 10,000 of those fires every year and figure out and that's a lot of data that you can now put through a system that it can learn off of, right? Yeah. Why did those ones go out and these ones didn't, and this one got big and this one didn't, et cetera? Why did the spread stop here? So, and you have 30 years of, of satellite imagery to be able to do that off of, and which is amazing. Again, thank you to, to NOAA and NASA for doing this. And so, now on the other hand, is what's called price dislocation or on the other axis, and that is. We could go and say, hey, look, we think we have a better model for understanding flood and hurricane right now than uh than anyone else. The machine learning model is doing a better job. And it says that you're underpricing. You're charging two million for $100 million a hundred million dollars of cover, but really the risk these days should for for Louisiana or this area, it should be more like four or five, whatever, yeah. right? However, in the market you know if you go and t- try to sell that to all farm they're going to be it's yeah. called greater full theory they're gonna be like why would i pay you for i don't care that it's a better model i'm paying them too they gave me a cheaper price exactly. they're the one
1: are on the hook exactly
0: so you have to wait for this price dislocation to happen like what's happened in california i see um, where right, right, uh right, right, where right. you can then come in with a better model and, and reset the price and bring stability back to the market.
1: You have to be able to come in and be like, for you, my friend, special price. I give you (laughs) (laughs) basically you have to wait for the proverbial to really hit the fan. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Which, um, as a new entrant, as a, as a new entrant in the market, right? You gotta,
1: gotta be able to do that.
0: So we look for those two things and then that's how we think about where we will move next.
1: Fascinating. It's a miracle. We spoke for an hour about insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Best best part of my day. Um. (laughs) And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Nat for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening for giving the ratings and reviews and telling your friends, your neighbors, your, your loved ones, your enemies, your friends, everybody, about Danny in the Valley. And what a wonderful thing it is and how it's changed your life for the better or something like that. I will be in the paper this week. I'm probably writing about Facebook. It's been a really bad week for Facebook. Some really damning revelations. So doing a big number on that. So do check that out. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for this week. Have a fabulous weekend. Take care and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley.